0: Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by Ellen Malcolm, who founded EMILY's List in 1985 and served as its president for 25 years until 2010. There are very, very few people who've had more impact on American politics over the past few decades than Ellen Malcolm. When Ellen founded Emily's List in 1985, with 21 of her fellow founding mothers, only five percent of the U.S. House were women, and there had never been a Democratic woman elected to the Senate in her own right. Since then, Emily's List has helped completely transform that political landscape. Since its founding, EMILY's List has won over 1,400 races, raised over $700 million for its candidates. I'm excited today to talk about the story of EMILY's List and the story of Ellen Malcolm. Ellen Malcolm, tell me how you grew up.
1: I grew up in the suburbs of New York, in Montclair, New Jersey, um, with my parents and and two half-brothers, my my father died when i was young and my mother remarried and my brothers are um from that marriage and uh it was a pretty conventional 1950s suburban republican upbringing
0: and did you grow up in a political family
1: you know i my family really wasn't that political per se i mean they read the newspaper every day and when there was a presidential election they would be discussing it and. I remember going to grade school and when Eisenhower and Stevenson were running against each other and and it being a Republican area, all the kids are running around going, Eisenhower's got the power, Stevenson's a jerk, and all kinds of highly sophisticated uh, political discussions. Certainly, I remember the Kennedy race and Kennedy-Nixon in 1960 wasn't very political. My mother was very involved in community affairs in Montclair And eventually, when I became 21, somebody had asked her to be Republican committee woman. So she was on the ballot in my first election, uh, running for Republican committee woman. So she was somewhat involved in that. The funny part about that is I just turned 21. And I'd been working for Jean McCarthy and was wanting to end the war. I told my mother I was going to go register as a Democrat. She was shock and then she kind of laughed and she said well if you register as a democrat you can't vote for me <laughs> she laughs she says she thinks she got my stepfather and my grandmother's votes and that was probably it but whatever it was it won
0: and and so was it the vietnam war you mentioned the, the eugene mccarthy campaign one of the earliest and most prominent critics of the vietnam war was it that was it the vietnam war that drew you in into the political debate political discussion
1: it was. I um, went to college uh, in Virginia, in Hollins College, and one of my best friends was very liberal, very involved in politics. Her father was a college professor, so a very different look on the world than I had. She was all opposed to this war in Vietnam. I didn't know much about it. This was, you know, 1966, seven, those days. And then she got involved with the anti-war movement and was going to go help Gene McCarthy in the Pennsylvania primary. By then, I was sort of intrigued by all this. So she said, Why don't we go together? And we started knocking doors in Philadelphia. And I remember we went to a Simon and Garfunkel concert on behalf of Gene McCarthy. It was all very exciting. And I got the bug. I just thought, This is really important. It's something I love. I want to keep doing this. And so I volunteered for the McCarthy campaign uh, when I went back home to New Jersey over the summer. I was uh, more interested in politics after Gene McCarthy, certainly, than ever before.
0: So that's your path to political activism, to political interest. Uh, What is your path from there to actually working and, and dedicating yourself to it as a profession?
1: After uh, graduation, I moved up to Washington, uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do. And John Gardner, who had been Secretary of HEW, Health and Education and Welfare, in the Johnson administration, also was opposed to the war, and he started Common Cause. Common Cause was supposed to be a citizens' lobby that was going to lobby on behalf of citizens because the special interests all had their lobbies, but who spoke up for the regular voters? They had way up on their agenda ending the funding for the Vietnam War. So I went and started working there and started organizing members around the country, learning a lot about the political process. One of the core principles of being a common cause was demystifying the political process. And we had a lot of volunteers that would come in and work then. And we would have briefings from the political people on what was going on. The lobbyists that were working on campaign finance reform or trying to stop the funds in Vietnam, the legal team that was suing the committee to reelect President Nixon, which ended up being part of the Watergate scandal. Fascinating place to be. And I learned so much from all these political briefings about how the Hill works, how politics works, how organizing works from what I was doing. Uh, One of the things they did was begin to do direct mail, low donor fundraising and building that up. And Roger Craver was on the lead on doing that for Common Cause. So it was all these little pieces, kind of like going to political college for me. So after four years, I knew a heck of a lot about what to do, what I was better at and loved it.
0: And certainly, people associate you with Emily's List. But before Emily's List, you had a stop at the National Women's Political Caucus, but one of the earlier organizations that tried to politically empower women. What What is significant about that organization and your in your time there?
1: Yeah, the the National Women's Political Caucus was part of the strategy, I guess you say, that was developed in the 70s to give women political power. And now it's doing a lot of work on lobbying on women's issues. And and there were other organizations specializing in issues. But what the caucus was all about elections and politics and getting women uh, involved in that. I went there to be the press secretary during the big Equal Rights Amendment fight, met a lot of women, both Democratic and Republican women, as a matter of fact, who were involved in this nonpartisan or bipartisan organization to elect women and began to learn what that was about and what some of the barriers to electing women to office are.
0: And Ellen, who is Henrietta (laughs) Wyndham?
1: Well, I um, I had the good fortune to inherit some money after my father died, and I turned 21. And I wanted to give it to different organizations in the nonprofit world. But I didn't want to be known as the donor because I was working in that arena. And so I eventually decided to start a a philanthropy that I called the Wyndham Fund, and Lael Stiegel um, was the executive director of it. And I was the anonymous donor. Nobody knew who I was. And people were always trying to figure out who is this person, this Wyndham person who was writing these checks to all these women's organizations. And so we would laugh about it. And one day I said, you know, we should just invent a mythical Henrietta Wyndham will pretend that her she invented tampax or something. She made all this money and was giving it to, to women's groups. And so Lale would come back from the summer and she'd go to a flea market. And once she found this absolutely perfect picture of this very strong-looking woman with a bun. We hung it over the water fountain where Henrietta was. And the funny part of the story was that um, after I was involved in some of this, the Washington Post did a piece on me. And in the piece, I referred to the Wyndham Fund. And so one day I was sitting at my office and the secretary said, Ellen, have you got a minute? The Wyndhams are here and they want to meet you oh no, now what do I do? So I went out and I met this very nice couple from the Midwest somewhere. Their brother had sent the article and they thought maybe they had some long lost wealthy relative and they'd stop by and see if there was any resemblance to the picture. And I I sort of awkwardly explained, well, there really wasn't any Henrietta Wyndham. It's the street I used to live on. They, somewhat confused, I think, left and went about their tour. It was an incredible strategy to protect my anonymity and anybody that has the fortune to be in this situation, it's something to think about because when we treated it like a foundation, everybody worked through the deadlines of the foundation and all this and didn't come to me, it worked very well. But after a while, I thought, I'm involved in this. I really care about it. I really want to do more with other women that have inherited wealth. And I very slowly came out of the philanthropic closet and acknowledged that, in fact, I was the donor for the Wyndham Fund.
0: 1982, State Senator Harriet Woods runs for U.S. Senate in Missouri against incumbent John Danforth. Why was that race a catalyst for the creation of Emily's List?
1: It was an amazing case study for what happened to women. Harriet Woods was running against John Danforth, diehard, old school uh, Republican, former minister. She was um, state senator, very supportive of women's issues. And it turned out that one of the women that had worked at the caucus was roommates with her, or at least very close friends when they were in college. And so when Harriet was running for the Senate, Freddie sent us all letters about this great woman named Harriet Woods that was running for the Senate. And we all got excited and we wrote our checks to Harriet and waited to see what was going to happen. Well, what happened is the political establishment, uh, the Democratic political establishment, in Missouri, never believed she could win, refused to help raise money for her or give her any significant money. Harriet was moving ahead in the polls, but she ran out of money. And she became a sitting duck for Danforth to use his money to uh, characterize her, mischaracterize her positions on issues. And and she ended up losing the Senate race by fewer than 25,000 votes. So it was a very close race. It certainly seemed to be, with a little financial help, a race that Democrats could have taken and and held that seat. But, you know, the guys said, no, they couldn't believe and they weren't going to do anything to help. And we were furious because this is what happened to women all the time. We hear all kinds of stories at the caucus of women who went to their local political funders, the Democratic funders, and were pretty much told, we don't think you're going to win. We don't think you'll be able to raise the money. And as a result, we're not going to give you any money. And so the women were just caught in this terrible, vicious circle.
0: The Emily's List is created in 1985, a little over two years later than that. But is it fair to say in that 83, 84 range, is the idea floating around your head? A concept like Emily's List coming together, does it go back that far?
1: It does. Lael and I decided we wanted to figure out some way to break through this vicious circle that women were caught in. So we had a breakfast with some of the leading women in politics that we knew, said, you know, what can we do about this? And I asked people, I went around the table and I said, what do you think we need to do to elect a woman to the Senate? It's kind of amazing. In those days, there had never been a Democratic woman elected to the Senate in her own right. The only women that had served in the Senate were appointed for some short term while the governor or whoever had his other political plans in place, or they were, succeeded, they were succeeding their husbands. But there was, had never been a woman that had worked her way up and been elected to the Senate. One by one, every single person at the table said, we've got to figure out how to raise early money. We've got to make these women viable in the eyes of the political establishment. And until they can raise enough money to to do their poll and show them that they have a real campaign and can raise big bucks they're not, nobody's going to believe them. We just, we never get anywhere. We had this kind of early thought about raising early money. And in 1984, we figured out who all the Democratic women were that were running for the Senate that year. And we wrote kind of a chain letter. We, we described the campaigns, little paragraph on each woman. We said, here's where you can send your check. I came up with the name Emily's List, so we had some kind of identity. We started out trying to help those women run. The other thing that was going on at the same time in 1984 was the Mondale Ferraro running against Reagan. And of course, a lot of our founders had been very involved in getting Jerry on the ticket with Fritz Mondale. So it was a very exciting time for women. Uh, We were hoping we could ride some of that enthusiasm and elect a woman senator, even Though when we looked at the races, there really were all long shots. Ultimately, it was a very strong win for the Republicans in 1984. All of those women lost. In fact, I think only one of them got over 40% of the vote. It wasn't very impactful in an important way. We didn't have the great opportunities. We had no idea who was sending money to the campaign. We got reports that people liked the idea, but they You know, they weren't sending it back to us. So how did we know? We didn't even know who they were. I mean, somebody would say, this is a fabulous idea. I sent it to my mother in Chicago. She sent it to all her friends. Well, who were they? We we didn't know. I had just finished up my MBA and I said to myself, you know what? There's a piece of a good idea here. There's certainly a good name. There's a good concept of trying to raise early money. I'm going to really try and make this happen. So after 1984, the losses that came out of that, we used our determination and anger to create Emily's List for the 1986 elections.
0: Well, let me ask a bit more about 1984. And you touched on it, but you and, and some of your, your colleagues were part of an effort to not only encourage Walter Mondale uh, to choose a woman, he was, he'd expressed openness to it, uh, I believe, but had, did not commit to it uh, Joe Biden style, but you and, and your colleagues engaged in sort of some informal lobbying, vetting to try to narrow down the field toward choosing uh then Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro.
1: I was not really involved in it except to give it a little financial support. But some of our founders, like Joanne has and and um Eleanor Lewis and a number of others were looking at what was happening in the presidential. Where women were, they were seizing their political power. There was more of an awareness of women having political voices, even though we couldn't get them to elected to office very much. They were really beginning to be taken seriously and were becoming an emerging part of the Democratic coalition. Mondale was always going to have a very hard time with this race. So there was a lot of buzz in the in the political world about maybe he should put a woman on the ticket. And all kinds of people were saying, yeah, we need to have um, a woman on the ticket. That's a great idea. But my smart friends said, if we don't figure out what woman should be on the ticket, This is all going to fizzle away and you can't fight a real person, another alternative for for Mondale with a sort of a a nice idea of a broad construct. So they went about privately their very own process of going through all the women and they could find in big offices and vetting them and basically decided that Jerry Ferraro was the best woman to be on the ticket with Fritz Mondale. And so they did a lot of inside and outside lobbying. Uh, Tip O'Neill, for example, loved Jerry. He was was a big factor in all of this and talked to Mondale. Sure enough, Mondale decided that he wanted his nominee, Jerry Ferraro, and it was a phenomenally exciting moment.
0: 1984 was a big loss for Democrats. You know, you've touched on that. You know, people know that 49 state reagan landslide but actually was a win for what would become the emily's list movement is is that fair to say
1: you know one of the things i've learned in politics is losses create opportunities the loss of the equal rights amendment and the loss of the 1984 election we didn't win our major goals but a lot of women became very politicized in a very different way, learned a lot of skills about organizing. You know, we were in every state working on the Equal Rights Amendment. We met each other, which was important. And we started to to kind of have a sense of who was out there that might be good when we started Emily's List in a very interesting way positioned to take advantage of this. Let me make two special points about why Jerry's loss was so important to us. First of all, I was very interested in supporting women, but I realized in a very different emotional way what it meant to me when I saw Fritz Mondale come out with Jerry Ferraro to introduce her to the country. I remember watching this historic moment and thinking to myself, oh, this is so exciting. God, she looks terrific. Oh my goodness. I hope she doesn't cry. I'm sure if I was up there, I'd just cry because it's so important. It's so wonderful. Oh, she looks great. I wonder what she's going to say. And I realized that for the first time in my life, I was personally identifying with a candidate for public office. A lot of women saw Jerry and thought that could be me. That could be my daughters. I understand who she is because she's a woman like me. Jerry was drawing incredible crowds where she went. You know, mothers would go with their little babies and hold the babies up so they could see her. The other piece is the Democratic Party didn't get it at all. They didn't target women voters. They didn't pay much attention to all these women that were coming out in the crowd. I mean, just think of how many, you know, small donors they could have gotten out of that list. They missed out on a huge opportunity. And the other lesson of Emily's List is when the Democratic Party writ large doesn't understand the importance of opportunities, it creates a vacuum for Emily's List and women just to move right in. So we did. In 1985, we began what is now known as the EMILY's List we see today. We came up with this concept, which we call a donor network. Others call it bundling. Under the federal elections law, a PAC can contribute up to $5,000 in a primary or in a general election. That's the ceiling of what a PAC can contribute. Well, that wasn't going to get us anywhere. 5,000 in the primary wasn't going to have any impact.
0: That doesn't solve Harriet Wood's problem.
1: Doesn't solve Harriet Wood's problem or any other woman's problem. But if we had 100 people, 1,000 people, and they made out a check for a hundred dollars to Harriet Woods and sent it back to us. We could raise a hundred thousand dollars for Harriet Woods as opposed to the five thousand we could contribute. And women got it. They would cheer at the very concept the power of the donor network of giving people their ability to make their own decision where their money's gonna go, write out the checks to the candidates, they choose and then send it back to us, and we will forward those bundles, if you will, to the campaigns, uh, became the hallmark of EMILY's List.
0: And, and you mentioned in your book that being involved in other organizations, Common Cause, the, 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 the National Women's Political Caucus, that as you're getting EMILY's List off the ground, you were very intentional about minimizing turf wars, infighting. How were you thinking of tackling some of those issues as you were building this organization from the ground?
1: I think the way organizations operate really make a difference to how they're going to be able to move forward. And having been at Common Cause, which was creating this citizens lobby and doing various things, and then being at the National Women's Political Caucus and watching what was going on with the women's movement, it became very clear to me that organizations could get very bogged down in process, internal process, pretty Quickly. What we wanted to do was create kind of a lean, mean way of operating. We wanted everybody to be dedicated to the mission of electing Democratic pro-choice women to office and not worry about what was happening with the California state organization, you know, the caucus on blibbity blop over here and all that. We wanted it focused absolutely on that. We wanted to be able to be responsive we wanted to be able to articulate what we were doing and giving the financial decision making power to members by where they sent their checks. And so we created a steering committee. Literally, we would meet when we needed to meet, when there was something to do. And we would meet for lunch. We'd come in from noon to two. And we almost always were done by two. I was pretty ruthless. And we discuss what we want to do. We'd make our decisions. And then we'd go about our work. And those of us that were running Emily's List were then able to implement uh, the program and get things moving. And it's worked very well. And there's been all kinds of times during the years where people have wanted to say, you know, I get together at our events. I still love the people. We want to have a book club out of the EMILY's List members, you know, or, you know, we think California should be involved in initiatives and, you know, all these different ways that could distract from the mission. And we're like, nope, we know what we're about. We elect Democratic pro-choice women. Here's how we do it. You're welcome to join. We love you. Let's go change the
0: world. You talk about electing pro-choice Democratic women. People certainly know that's the EMILY's List mission. The pro-choice component wasn't necessarily something that had been locked down 100% at the start. Uh, Can you talk about how that became a, a prerequisite?
1: Yeah, the two big issues during the Equal Rights Amendment fight for the women's movement were the Equal Rights Amendment itself, and then the abortion issue, which the fundamental principle that women should be able to make their own decisions about what to do with their bodies without government interference, bedrock pillar for the women's movement. It didn't make much sense, we thought, to give women all these rights and say, you should be able to do this and do that. Oh, but by the way, you don't get to decide your own body. We thought that that would be maybe our litmus test issue or something that we would insist upon. But I wanted to make sure. I wanted to see what would happen with some of the women in the Congress who were not pro-choice, who were devout Catholic, made no bones about it, that they were opposed to abortion. went up and I met with Mary Rose O'Carr and Lindy Boggs, wonderful Lindy Boggs, said, uh, here's what we're thinking about. They said, oh, that's really great. We love that you're going to elect more women. Yeah, and we're going to make sure that all our candidates are pro-choice. Well, if you do that, we can't help you. We can't participate. So good government common cause. Me, I go back to the steering committee to make my report and I say, here's where we are. You know, we're going to lose these people. They're not going to be a part of it do you think we should have a bigger umbrella and not make choice a fundamental part? And so we're having this, we start to have this kind of intellectual conversation, like about X seconds into the conversation, some voice I could hear at the table said, but of course we'd only want to elect pro-choice women. And everybody said, well, yeah, okay, fine, of course. And so it became The test. So we had three criteria that we looked at. One was pro choice, one was democratic, which was actually novel as well because all the other women's political organizations were bipartisan. And we used to be so excited that any woman was going to run for office. You know, we were for that. But we said, look, we've been around. We see what happens. The Democrats are different from Republicans. We need to control the Senate and the House and the White House. Let's just elect Democratic women. And then the third thing that we looked at was whether or not the candidate had a realistic chance of winning the race. We had, I think, a contract with our members. We're going to tell you who's out there running. We're going to give you their positions on all kinds of issues. And you write checks to whoever you want. But our pledge to you is we think these women have a shot at this race. We are not going to recommend candidates to you who couldn't win if their life depended on it. And so that was the third criteria that we looked at.
0: 1986 is really when it starts in 85, but the 86 cycles really when, when Emily's List starts uh, making its presence felt. And again, this is, again, one of the things I think is really interesting about your book is, uh, you know, it goes into some depth on all these election cycles. But you talk about there was some discussion in 1986 of candidates who might run Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's Wife uh, uh, Sally Ride, the astronaut, might run in California. None of those do. Uh, but someone who does run uh, is Barbara Mikulski, then a House member. Can you tell uh, the story of your that first meeting you had with then Congresswoman Barbara Mikulski, and just speak to the, the the impact of of that one Senate race in Maryland on, on what we now know uh, to be the the uh, the larger footprint of Emily's list?
1: To show you how a neophyte I was in this, I had never met a member of Congress. So I was pretty excited when Wendy Sherman, Barber's chief of staff, said that the congresswoman would like to have lunch with me in the House. So I went up kind of nervous and whatever. Subsequently, Senator Mikulski said to me, Ellen, let me explain to you Maryland politics. She said it's a highly Democratic seat. It's a state. It's three to one Democratic registration. So whoever wins the primary is highly likely to be elected to the Senate. If you want to win a Democratic primary, you really need to come out of the Baltimore media market. There are Democrats in the suburbs of Washington, in the wealthy county of Montgomery County, but the Democratic votes are in Baltimore and Baltimore City and Baltimore County. And people know me there. They love me there. And that's how I'm going to win this election. So I tell her about Emily's List and how I'm telling people if we get a thousand people and they write, you know, $100 checks and, you know, we didn't know if this was going to work, but that's certainly the plan. So I tell her this and she says, great. And she takes out her pen and her, her piece of paper and she writes down. Emily's List, $100,000, and I thought, oh my goodness, this member of Congress just told me she, that I had to do what I said I was going to do. I better get back to work and make this thing work. So we did. Barbara Mikulski's race was, again, another case study of what happens with women. First poll came out way in advance of the election. Barbara was running against the sitting governor and uh, a member of Congress from Montgomery County, that wealthy suburb that didn't have the Democratic base vote in it. And she was way ahead, double digits ahead. So she goes to the party funders and she says, look at this poll. I'm a 10 year member of the House. I'm running for the Senate. You can see I'm going to win. May I have some money? And the guys would say, no, it's just name recognition. You're not going to win. We're going ha- to support the guy from Montgomery County because he's going to raise all this money. Same old story, same dynamic with Harriet. Like, here we go again. Only this time we had Emily's List, little brand new Emily's List that literally had at that stage fewer than a thousand members. We sent out our first candidate mailing. We recommended Barbara Mikulski and Harriet Woods, who was running again in in Missouri, and said, please write checks to these two women. And then we just sat down and prayed because who knew if anybody was going to do this strange and unusual thing? Next thing we know, we're getting checks and we're getting $100 checks. Sometimes we get 250 checks. Sometimes we get a $1,000 check. And we ended up raising in that time for that first federal election uh, commission report, enough money along with the Mikulski campaign that Barbara was financially competitive with the other congressmen, showed the de- Democratic establishment That not only did she have a double-digit lead in the polls, apparently she could raise money too. And all of a sudden, the political establishment, um, you know, they liked the conventional wisdom and they shifted the conventional wisdom. Everybody went over and started writing checks to the person who was going to be Senator Barbara Mikulski. Her opponent's money dried up and she ended up winning the primary handily, really, So early money is like yeast. We made the dough rise. And it did, in fact, make Barbara viable. And it did, in fact, make history as she became the first Democratic woman elected to the Senate in her own right.
0: And I'm not sure any elected official is more intertwined with Emily's List than Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, for years and years, for virtually the entirety of the existence of Emily's List. Uh, But your first meeting with Nancy Pelosi is an interesting story and perhaps gives some insight as to how even, and this is in the 80s, mid-80s, that Nancy Pelosi was a very formidable political uh, presence. So uh, can you give a glimpse on that first interaction you had uh, with Nancy Pelosi?
1: Yeah. At one point that reporters were asking her when she became the speaker, first woman speaker, they said, uh, what do you do when the Democrats all get raucous and don't want to do what what you think they should do? And she said, well, I give them my grandmother's stare. So somebody said, what are they talking about? I said, let me tell you this story. I know exactly what that grandmother's stare is. Anna Eschew was running for Congress in the Silicon Valley, one of the Silicon Valley seats outside of San Francisco. She was very good friends with Nancy Pelosi. She is a wonderful, wonderful woman. Nancy Pelosi agreed to host a membership event for us and in San Francisco, which was a very important for us to establish ourselves. And so when I got to Nancy's house, there were all these people and Anna was there. We had not yet made our endorsements for our House candidates. And, you know, again, good government common cause me, I was going to make sure we went through the process. This wasn't going to be Ellen's decision. This was going to be the group's decision on who we were going to endorse. But we loved Anna. We were doing all we could to help her already. There was absolutely no question we were going to endorse Anna. But Nancy Pelosi, the great fundraiser, the one who knows how to counter votes and and close the deal, said to me in her introduction, well, Ellen's here with us today. I hope while she's here in this house in San Francisco, we'll endorse my good friend Anna Eshu for the house. And I smiled at this lady and I said, uh, yeah, Anna is absolutely wonderful. We haven't completed our process, but I'm sure we will do that. And then went into my remarks as, soon, as fast as I could to change the subject. Finish my remarks. This nice woman, Nancy Pelosi, looks at me with her steely grandmother's look and says, But Ellen, you're here tonight, and Anna is here tonight, and we're all here tonight. And I think you should endorse her right now. (laughs) And I looked at this woman and I thought, Oh dear, this is a force to be reckoned with here. And I thought, No, I can't do it. So I said, uh, You know, I understand what you're saying. I am pretty sure we're going to be with Anna. We're doing all we can to help her, but I'm not going to make that decision right here tonight, and I'm not going to endorse her at this time. So I got the full uh, uh, Pelosi pressure. It's formidable.
0: Yeah, well, a long list of people who've been on the business end of the uh, of the Nancy Pelosi stare, no doubt about it. Uh, the 1988 cycle, there's no uh, women Senate candidates are available for EMILY's List to support, but EMILY's List does elect several women to the House. One race I wanted to ask at you, one name I wanted to to throw out, who's not a household name to the degree that some of these others are, Uh, is a significant race because maybe it's one of the first times that Emily's List was really getting behind a candidate from the beginning. Barbara Mikulski was a juggernaut before Emily's List got involved. They helped her, but, but Barbara Mikulski was very strong in her own right. But in 1988, there was a woman named Jolene Unseld in Washington State. Might have been one of the earlier races that was sort of more of an Emily's List production than had been the case before and maybe became a model of sorts for that type of race. Am I reading that correctly?
1: I agree with that just to the extent of how we were doing it in those days uh, before we created a political program. but. But yes, we we were um, we knew there weren't any women running for the Senate in '88. And so we started looking at house races, and we ended up supporting nine women running for the house. We were very excited about the potential for Jolene. She was a state rep, very interesting independent woman. She was the uh, basically the good government person in the Washington state legislature. It's a wonderful, tenacious character. She had been married to Willie Unsold, who is a very famous mountain climber climber who was unfortunately killed uh, on a climb with some students um, before that. So she was Willie's um, widow and people knew her from that and they knew her from the legislature, but it was still a tough race. We had to raise a lot of money. And I remember a friend of mine was here in recovery from back surgery and she was staying in my guest room. And the night of the primary in September, we had been raising money for from Jolene from all around the country and she'd been working hard, but we didn't know what the results were going to be. And I remember getting the call late at night saying, you know what, she's going to win it. And going into my friend and saying, you know what, this damn thing actually works. We raised money for her. We convinced the establishment she was the right candidate, and she ended up winning a house seat.
0: And your book is really worth the price of admission just for the uh, discussion and a chapter or two on Ann Richards. It, it felt like from reading your book that you were, you were perhaps as emotionally invested in Ann Richards' campaign as perhaps uh, any other in those first several cycles. Is that was that the case?
1: That absolutely was the case. We had known Anne for years through the National Women's Political Caucus, and there was a wonderful group, Martha Smiley, Jane Hickey, and a number of others that were the caucus in Texas, and they were ardent feminists. And they were, I remember they they created a whole exhibit about women in Texas history, because nobody ever taught anything about women in, in Texas. And they throw it in the back of the station wagon, and they go to different little towns, and schools and do a little talk about the women that are actually important in the history that you don't know about. So she was one of us. She was, she was. She had our values. She was doing the same work in her area that we were doing in ours. So we knew her and we loved her. And then, of course, she was the keynote speaker in the Dukakis convention in Atlanta, gave an absolutely hysterical, wonderful speech. Everybody else began to know how wonderful Anne was. That positioned her in 1990 to run for governor.
0: And again, your your book goes into a lot of depth, a lot of really interesting uh, twists and turns to, to the Anne Richards' political career that, that that people would absolutely enjoy. And if Geraldine Ferraro was a, a, a you know, the launching pad, perhaps for some of the sentiment behind Emily's list, it feels like the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings were also an incredibly important inflection point. Can you just talk about sort of how that created this groundswell of of energy and and activity, and and how Emily's list went about fully leveraging that moment to uh, expand its reach.
1: If you think of the market segment, potential Emily's List members, they received an incredible political lesson when Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court and Anita Hill had the courage to come forward and say that he had sexually harassed her. An explosive political event. The entire country was riveted by the Thomas Hill hearings. This 14 all male, all white Senate Judiciary Committee, who basically the Republicans raked Anita Hill over the coals, made all kinds of disgusting accusations about her. Democrats weren't sure what to do, so they were kind of silent. Everybody was watching this from the home. Men who had been in the workplace were very used to patting women on the back end and maybe trying to kiss them a little bit. All the sexual harassment stuff that we used to watch on the television show, Mad Men, that was very real. And so when they heard these accusations, they were like, oh, he didn't do anything. You know, he was just clowning around. It's not important. Working women, on the other hand, have been subjected to this offensive and assault for men for their entire work careers and basically thought, this is my problem. I have to come up with my strategy. It's sort of verboten. I shouldn't talk about this in public. And so they listened to Anita Hill and they said, oh, I get it. I believe her. And so, our market segment, who are these potentially working women, had this eye opening experience. They started sharing all their experiences of sexual harassment. They became very politically energized, very angry, and they learned that there weren't any women in the Senate to speak of to to present the women's view. so on this issue that was so different between men and women, you had a fourteen white Males on the Senate judiciary and no woman to defend Anita Hill. And so they wanted to elect women, and electing women to the Senate became the battle cry across the country.
0: Really, 92, it feels like, was the breakthrough that you had been looking for.
1: Absolutely was. 60 Minutes wanted to do a story on this phenomenon that was taking place, this energy around electing women, and somehow they discovered Emily's List in the process. And they they did a whole segment on Emily's List in the March uh, before the election. It was the most watched show on television at the time. The response was unbelievable. Now you have to really understand what Emily's List was at that time. We had seven staff people, the entire database of Emily's List on one computer. So very small, and after the sixty minutes aired, we got sixteen thousand phone calls from people in the next week saying they wanted membership information. People were just sending us hundred dollar checks, which was not easy because there was no internet. You had to make a often a toll call to directory assistance to figure out if Emily's list was in Washington and what was the address. Bottom line is, by the end of the election. We'd gone from 3,000 members to 24,000. We raised about $10 million. We elected four new Democratic women to the Senate. And remember in the House, there only were only 12 Democratic women when we started. We added 20. Democratic women, new Democratic women to the House in 1992. And I said to the staff, we' it's never going to be like this again, this environment. We have to do everything we can to take advantage of it and we'll clean it up afterwards. So we began to network the computers and the whole nine yards to figure out how to become a bigger organization. That election, not only did it elect all those people to office, but more importantly, it gave Emily's List the resources to go from just being a fundraising organization into, into being a full scale political organization.
0: And I'd encourage people to go back. We have a previous episode in the archives with Rose Kapilchinski, who managed Barbara Boxer's U.S. Senate campaign in 1992. Certainly a good example of the power of that uh, cycle, the, the year of the woman, as the media called it. We, we just started to scratch the surface here. Not one, perhaps, that is, that is the most glamorous, uh, a 2004 race, a primary that elected Gwen Moore in a Milwaukee-based uh, U.S. House district in Wisconsin, an open seat, uh, also seems like it became sort of a model, an, an evolution of the model of how Emily's List could operate.
1: Yeah, it was it was a fantastic, fun win. I hired Mary Beth Cahill to be our um, political director and then became the executive director to put together the political program from Emily's List. And so she began the early 90s. And we began doing things like training people to work in campaigns, how to be campaign managers and press secretaries and those kind of things, fundraisers. We had people on the staff that had experience in these um, house races. You know, when you run for the house, often it was the first race or Um, Maybe they'd only been a state rep and didn't know how to make a big congressional campaign. So we had people on the staff that worked with the campaigns. We did all kinds of work to eventually mobilize women voters, realized very quickly that women had the power to make the difference for our women candidates and for Democrats up and down the ticket. And so we had these three parts. And then the fourth part, was beginning to do training at the state and local level. So all those parts came together in this wonderful opportunity to elect a woman of color to Congress. And what a fantastic woman she is. Gwen Moore was a state senator from Milwaukee, is a powerhouse in her community. Her house seat opened up and Gwen thought she would like to run for Congress. We met Gwen. We were excited about Gwen. But Gwen had some real formidable challenges. One is the Democratic establishment, including the governor um, and the most powerful member of the House at that time, David Obie, were in favor of her opponent, who was a trial lawyer that had been uh, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, the ultimate old boys network of Wisconsin. Gwen, from this poor state Senate area from Milwaukee was going to face a very well-funded opponent that had a lot of political support. All the pieces that I just described, we helped her do an assessment and figure out how to raise money. Uh, Jen Palaja from our staff was in there all the time helping put the campaign together, advising her. And what Gwen had was a very solid grassroots network that loved her. They were doing all they can to support her, but she was they were they didn't have a lot of income. One lady arrived one day with a brown paper bag with pennies in it that she'd been saving it. And that was her contribution to Gwen. So what we were able to do was broaden that and introduce Gwen to our membership and donors across the country so she could begin to contact them. We ended up doing a big get out the vote program in the primary race. And uh, at the end of the day, Gwen won the primary with over 60% of the vote. Uh, It was a fantastic victory. And Gwen, there were so many people from Emily's list coming in to help her that she finally gave up on all who did what and what their names were. And she just referred to them as Emily Jen, (laughs) Emily Heather, when she called me Emily Ellen, I knew I had arrived. I was pretty proud of that. Uh, she's just a fantastic woman. She was the first African-American to be elected to the House from Wisconsin and uh, joined Tammy Baldwin in the House as two major victories of this full-scale political operation. Gwen's victory was just the first step for us and, and it certainly was our biggest and one we were most proud about. But we also realized that we now have a state Senate seat that's open. And so we went to a, the woman who was a state rep in the district and said, You should run for the state Senate. And she said, Really? And we said, Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want you to run for the state Senate. So she said, Okay, I'll run for the Senate. And I said, But, but first, your first job is to go make sure you find somebody to run for your state rep seat because we don't want to lose that seat either. So she did. And she recruited a woman to run for the state rep, and they all won, all three of them. And we said it was our first trifecta as we had elected three African-American women to office. One is a congresswoman, one is the new state senator, and one is the new state rep. It, it was a perfect combination of events.
0: And, and I'm sure it's hard to rank the moments in your political career, but I imagine Emily's List helping Democrats To both win the House majority in 2006, but then seeing uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi holding the gavel, you know, 20 plus years after you you were on the receiving end of a a grandmother stare at a fundraiser in San Francisco. But seeing Speaker Nancy Pelosi hold the gavel, that must rank close to the top of your of your of your professional moments.
1: I had the good fortune to be in the gallery when she was sworn in and uh, I was quite mindful of the fact that she became the leader of the Democratic House caucus because she had a very important political base. She had the California delegation, which is very large, and she had by that time more than 40 Democratic women in the House. We, you know, we kept adding and adding and adding. And so and that base of California and the women really allowed her to go on and build the coalition that made her the head of, of the Democrats. And then when we took the House, she became the speaker. So I'm sitting up in the gallery and I'm looking down on the floor of the House. You know, usually when you look at the State of the Union and you would look at everybody sitting on the floor, it was always all these men and they usually had dark suits and gray hair. And it was a pretty boring, colorless picture but when you look down on those Democratic caucus and the Democratic side of the aisle, there was a red jacket and a green jacket and a yellow jacket. Uh, all these women that were there. And as I once said to Dick Gephardt, we're going to add a little color to the House. And we did.
0: You passed the torch to the next generation of, of leadership at Emily's List after the 2008 elections. You call it Emily's List 2.0. Why was that the right time for you to uh, to, to pass the torch? And how were you thinking about it?
1: I had been the president of Emily's List for 25 years and really shepherded these challenges. I mean, these changes, this evolution of Emily's List into this very powerful, full-service political operation but I thought there were some new challenges down the road. I, you know, we were getting into the internet age and the importance of social media and what all that was going to be. And how is that going to be involved in politics? And I thought it would be a good time for me to step aside and bring in a new leader with a fresh vision and a fresh set of eyes and ears and a new energy level to take us to the next level and had the absolutely incredibly good fortune to meet and, subsequently hire Stephanie Shriok to be our second president of Emily's List. What an incredible job she did for us for 11 years. Emily's List now is a gigantic organization compared to where we were. Uh, We raised more than $100 million in the last election cycle. We are doing a whole new program to take advantage of all the women after 2016, uh, again, another loss that created an amazing opportunities to uh, run for office. And we had more than 50,000 women contact us for the 2018 election saying they were interested in running and what could they, how do they do it? So we put together Run to Win, a whole new program to help women do that. So we're just growing. And uh, we're having incredible results. We saw that in 2018, which was sort of the second year of the women. And again, I had the pleasure of being in the gallery, watching uh, our speaker, um, Nancy Pelosi, take the gavel from the Republicans and, and, and be in charge of the House. So it, it's Stephanie's done an incredible job of taking us to the next level. And I'm just so happy that we had her there for 11 years. And
0: just a couple of macro questions here as we wind down. EMILY's List is one of the most successful political startups in modern history. I'm sure you're asked frequently by other people who are looking to start a group, start a nonprofit, whatever it is. What is the advice you give to people as they're looking to start a political group, a political organization from scratch? What what do you advise people to do?
1: I think they have to be. Very clear on their mission, what it is you can accomplish, especially for a new organization. You can't take on every issue under the sun. You can't say, we're going to elect more people, and we're going to lobby on these issues because that's important too. And we're going to do independent expenditures because that's important too. No, you you've got to start small, figure out exactly what your mission is, and then you can evolve from that and build from that. So that's the first thing. Uh, you also have to create the money to do it. And a lot of times, people get involved in starting organizations, and they care they care so much about the mission, and they don't really want to pay attention to the harsh reality that without money and support, you're not going to get anywhere. A lot of the successful organizations are ones that focus on money and how can we build a support network around what we want to do, and then how can we convert that support network into the resources to to keep the doors open and run the operation. All I did, particularly in the first cycle, was think about what Emily's List was. How is it going to operate? Where was it going to work? What was it going to sound like and look like and create the brand of what is Emily's List? This is no part-time job. It takes real dedication and a lot of work and a lot of people to join you in the effort. And so the first thing you've got to do is figure out how to put your own personal financial resources together so you can give a full-time effort to this.
0: So you clearly have an eye for talent. Uh, you clearly have an eye for helping uh, grow talent. What have you learned about uh, about building a team, about finding the right people over the years?
1: It's the same kind of thing, looking for people who co- who care about the mission, who are passionate, in our case, about electing women to office, who are frustrated by the status quo and want to do something. I think we have very, very smart staff people. And one of the things I hope and believe about EMILY's List is it's a good place to work because we value the staff. We want to know, we want them to grow in the job and we want to use the benefit of their talents and their hard work to achieve our mission. Just like we're always looking for opportunities to add women to the house, we're always looking for smart political people and finding ways to bring them into the EMILY's List orbit. Working for Emily's List is kind of like joining a family. And we have a number of people that work for us. They go out and they do a race. They go work for a union for a while. They come back and work for us again at a higher level job. We love what we do. Very positive, problem-solving entrepreneurial culture that is a part of Emily's List. uh, Always has been, and I'm happy to say continues.
0: Well, let's end on this. Uh, You know, this is a a question I borrowed from the economist Tyler Cowen. uh, But to paraphrase him, he might uh, talk about the Ellen Malcolm production function, meaning there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who work hard. Uh, What has made you different? What do you think is is unique and different about you that you've been able to be so successful in what you've done in politics?
1: I think I'm very determined. I really love the mission, and I was damn well determined that I was going to make it work. And it wasn't just to make sure I, you know, kept my pledge to Barbara Mikulski. It's like it was in my soul. I wanted this to work. I also believed it was a very good idea. I thought we were just doing something incredibly smart. All I had to do was go out and tell people about it. I was very proud of the idea and very determined to make it work because I wanted to change the world. I wanted the government to work better. And I thought that would happen when we elected more women. I have a couple of curious abilities. One is to find lemonade from lemons. And believe me, if you're in the political world, you um, lose a lot. Got to find the positives in those losses to keep you going. I have a very long-term view of social change. I don't think social change happens overnight. I think you make progress, you go backwards, you go forwards, it's a slow process. As one one person said, it's a leaping and creeping of social change. So you've gotta be able to sustain yourself in those creeping years when nothing is really, really taking off. You're making progress, but it's not taking off. And then you have to be prepared for those leaping years, those opportunities after Thomas Hill. The opportunities after Hillary's loss and, and Trump's election in 2016. You've got to have a long term view. And if you can't understand that, you'll burn out very fast. And I think I'm very lucky. I had the financial world wherewithal that I could do this for many years without any salary. It was the right time to come up with this idea. If we had done this in 1974 for the 76 elections, it would not have worked. We wouldn't have had the political opportunities. We would not have had women uh, who were willing to write checks. So we, we were exactly at the right moment. And we were able to grow for a while until our big leap from 92 took place. So, so I feel personally, I've been very fortunate to do this. I've loved every single minute of Emily's List, but I also think Emily's List is very lucky in that we started at the right moment and we maximized what we could do with the moment.
0: Well, likewise, I feel very fortunate to share this time with you here, Ellen just scratched the surface on uh, the story, your story, on the story of Emily's List. Absolutely would encourage people to get the full version in your in your book, uh, When Women Win, to track that down, but really couldn't be more appreciative of your time today. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.